Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. All right, so what we're going to do the rest of this quarter is we're going to read some psalms, and if you're not familiar with what psalms are, is they are the hymn book of Israel. Um, and uh, that's actually why we draw for them for a lot of the RUF songs. Uh, if you're curious why we sing the songs that we do, a lot of them are drawn from the psalms. Um, but one of the things, I haven't said as much this quarter, but I always want to be saying, um, is that RUF is a place for anybody to come to. We do the same thing every week in this group and in other groups, which is, we process the truth claims of Scripture, but you don't have to believe them to come to RUF. Um, anybody can come. And we believe everybody's in process all over the place, and I think if you meet a lot of people in this room, you'll find out there are people from a lot of different viewpoints. You don't have to be a certain type of person to come to RUF. And I think there's no stronger endorsement of the fact that a Christian community should function that way um, than when you look at the Psalms. Because in the Psalms, if you read them, you will be surprised, uh, really shocked if you go and read through all the Psalms, at the breadth of emotions displayed. All the different ways people talk to God in the Psalms. Um, There are Psalms that the entire Psalm is simply complaining that this is confusing and life is hard. And there's not even a redemptive element in the Psalm. So the writers, they don't clean up their, they don't think, oh, in order to kind of even engage in prayer with God, I've got to clean up my interior life and kind of put on this religious formula or this religious kind of exterior or interior. Uh, We're about to read Psalm 73, and I think just in this psalm in particular, you'll see not only do you not have to clean yourself up to come and do business with God, you actually shouldn't. It actually would be uh, pretty harmful. You probably wouldn't really understand the gospel if you thought, uh, or who God was, if you thought, I can't come to him I can't consider the truth claims. I can't even connect with something like RUF until I kind of like get on board with all these things. Psalm 73 uh, is a place where we see someone processing uh, a pretty serious struggle before God. So I'm going to read it and then we'll consider it. Truly, God is good to Israel to those whose hearts are pure. This is his qualifier at the beginning. Like, I know what I'm supposed to say is true. But as for me... I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping and I was almost gone. For I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. They seem to live such painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. They don't have trouble like other people. They're not plagued with problems like everyone else. They wear pride like a jeweled necklace and clothe themselves with cruelty. This is a a different translation than the ESV. These fat cats have everything. That's actually not in the Hebrew. There's no mention of cats. But... This is the New Living Translation. I just got it because it's a little more accessible. Normally use the ESV. These fat cats, if that all sounds like nerd speak to you, that's because it is. These fat cats have everything their hearts could ever wish for. They scoff and speak only evil. In their pride, they seek to crush others. They boast against the very heavens, and their words strut throughout the earth. And so the people are dismayed and confused, drinking in all their words. Like, what does God know? They ask, does the Most High even know what's happening? Look at these wicked people enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. Did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. 
If I had really spoken this way to others, I would have been a traitor to your people. So I tried to understand why the wicked prosper, but what a difficult task it is. Then I went into your sanctuary, O God, and I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. Truly you put them on a slippery path and send them sliding over the cliff to destruction. In an instant they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. When you arise, O Lord, you will laugh at their silly ideas as a person laughs at dreams in the morning. Then I realized that my heart was bitter, and I was all torn up inside. I was so foolish and ignorant, I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you. Yet I still belong to you, and you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. You lead me to a glorious destiny. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail, my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. Those who desert Him will perish, for you destroy those who abandon you. But as for me, how good it is to be near God. I have made the Sovereign Lord my shelter. I will tell everyone about the wonderful things you do. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for these words. We thank You for this prayer, for this song. Um, that You allow us to wrestle with ourselves in an authentic way in Your presence. Um, that we don't have to dress things up. Uh, and that You're patient. And that it doesn't stop Your steadfast love. So pray as we consider Your Word that your Holy Spirit would testify to our spirits that this is truth, that you're full of grace, and that in you we have everything. We need you to teach our hearts that. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, Brene Brown is one of these TED Talk celebrities. Some of y'all heard of Brene Brown, maybe. Their TED Talk shows up. Her TED Talk gets posted on someone's Facebook wall like once a week. And uh, the one she talks about a lot the, that's famous is she talks about shame. And one of the things she says about shame is that uh, she talks about how shame is something that alienates us, it separates us from people, and that one of the things she says is that shame has the most control over us, um, the more secret we keep it, right? The more we keep it internal and away from others. But when it gets out, when shame comes out and our struggle goes out and into an empathetic relationship with other people, then shame starts to wither. Uh, The reason I say that is because this psalm is written by the worship leader of God's people. Asaph, the Levitical priest, he was the top worship leader for God's people. And what this psalm says is it's a song written for God's people to sing together that says, a lot of times I think about walking away from you, God, because that seems easier. The worship leader of Israel wrote a song for us to get together and sing. And Brene Brown says something about these kind of moments. That the two most powerful words when we're in a struggle are me too. This is a great me too. That all of God's people are actually intended to pray and sing together. And it's a me too about what, right? It's a me too about this question or this sense. It just seems easier to not follow Jesus. Have you ever felt that way? Christian or non-Christian alike? Anybody can entertain that. You know, I think it would be easier to not embrace all of this. There's some aspects I like, but a lot of times it would be easier to not do this. What do we do when we see the lives of people who blissfully don't waste their time trying to figure out Jesus? Their life can be so easy. 
What do we do when we've been trying to live for Jesus and we're not getting what we want? And their life is better. That's what this psalm is about. This psalm is a great, me too, it is the worship leader of Israel saying, man, sometimes I'm tempted to walk away because it just seems easier to do that. And so just kind of take you through the two movements of the song. The first 16 verses is him wrestling with that loss of perspective, that kind of what's going on in his heart. And verse 17 and forward is kind of him picking up the pieces or really asking God to pick up the pieces for him. And so he starts by just processing that emotion. And he starts off saying, I was envious when I saw, I I almost slipped. I was envious when I saw the prosperity of people who didn't care about you. And actually, in, here, in, the, in the New Living Translation, it says their bodies are healthy and strong. That's actually not what the Hebrew said. The Hebrew actually says their bodies are fat and sleek. Because in the first century, this way you would say fit and thin is fat and sleek. It was actually more attractive to be bigger, to actually be overweight, than it was to be thin. Because it was actually a sign of wealth and things like that. So he just starts with mundane things, though, right at the very beginning, right? Bodies. I, this is what he saw people who had all the things that he wanted in life. That's the first thing he's wrestling with. I see a bunch of people around me, and they have the things I want in life. And he starts with just bodies. I just see people, and I wish I looked like them. Right? His discontentment starts in what seems like a mundane place, but we all know what that feels like. We all know what he's talking about. We simply see people, and we're just discontent with simply the way we look. In this image, the reason it says his bodies were fat and sleek is because it's a sign of wealth. It's not simply that he wanted to look like them, but also the way we look communicates something about the well-being of our lives as well. He wanted to have the things that they had. Right? Basically, being a fat in the first century communicated the same things to people's imagination as driving a Tesla X today. Right? It, it communicated the same things like that. That's a sign of something. Right? Whose life do you want? That's what we have to... If you're going to enter into this, to Psalm 73, right now you have to take a couple of moments in your imagination and talk about and kind of pull up who's, who is it that you envy? Whose life is it that you want? He saw people who had the life he wanted and then here it just gets worse. He saw people who had the life he wanted because they did whatever they wanted. They weren't hampered by any higher calling, any loyalty or love that demanded sacrifice for the sake of others. They weren't worried about things like obedience. They were fundamentally just guided by their appetite. I want it, so I'm going to go get it. So he means, he says, pride is their necklace, they scoff and speak with malice, they threaten oppression. They're unapologetically narcissistic. They're not saddled with what I'm saddled with. They are just comfortable saying, Life is about me and what I want, I'm going to aim for and I'm going to get. And if people get used in the way, if I need to patronize people, if people, I need to pass by people in the process, the road to fulfillment is about me getting what I want and I'm okay with that and that's what I'm aiming for. So he saw people had the lives they wanted. They had the lives that they wanted because they did whatever they wanted. They mocked God, right? He's thinking, I'm trying to do right by God and they say, how can God know? Does he know what's happening down here? They successfully achieve the life they want, 
And they actually think your attempts at religion are silly. Right? They have the life you wanted. They have the life they wanted because they did what they wanted. They didn't care what God thought. And he saw that they didn't experience consequences. They have no pain, still death. They're always at ease. They're increasing in riches. There seems to be no consequence. Here's the priest. He's wrestling with himself, right? He's wrestling with what it means to be faithful to God. He's wrestling with what it means to love his neighbor with sacrificial love. He's trying to say no to certain things that we want to say no to. And he's trying to say yes to certain things uh, that we want to say no to. And he's trying to serve God. And he looks out on other people's lives. And they're doing whatever they want sexually on campus. Behind closed doors, they're judgmental and horribly arrogant people. But because they're so cool, everybody loves them. They don't study and they get A's and they get the internships. They don't exercise and they look great. They're terrible people, but they have all the friends that you want. They're self-absorbed and horrible but happy people. And we all want to be them and we want to be with them. They're angry and they don't care. They're greedy and they don't care. They dismiss people they don't like and they don't care. They don't try to love hurting people. They write off friends. When they have a fight with friends or a disagreement, they're fine not seeking forgiveness. They're like, that's crazy. That's hard. And here's the thing. They're winning. They have what we want. That's the life we want. And where does the psalmist find himself? Slipping. And he acknowledges, if I had spoken this way, I would have betrayed my people, right? And when I thought to try to understand it, looking at their lives with envy, looking at my life with disappointment, taking this Christianity and saying, why am I saddled with this life? And why do they get to enjoy that life? And of course, what we really see here is that envy and doubt are very close relatives. And they're pretty much always hanging out together. Right? We look at our life and we begin, this is like a weekly thing now. Uh, I don't know. The way we often doubt God is we look at our life um, and we look at some lives around us and we're like, I don't know if I trust you, God, because I wanted that and you haven't gotten it for me. And that's actually mainly the way we entertain our kind of existential doubts about God. So the question for you to move forward is, who is it for you? And I don't know, it's not a specific person. It's a collection of people. It's general ideas. Maybe for some of you it is a specific person. Um, but who is it? And, but secondly, here's our question. When it seems like we could have everything we ever wanted if we just walked away from Jesus, what do we do with that? It's a real feeling. Everybody in this room entertains. Myself included. And what the Psalms do, and they're an incredible resource, is they are the place that God has given us to come and deal with our feelings. Because here's the thing, feelings and impulses are real. And usually, we typically make one of two errors with them. The One error is, is, is kind of the overly liberal error, is to give full vent. Like, who you are is how you feel and what your impulses and desires are. That's who you are. You have to give full expression to that. You need to be authentic. You give full expression to how you feel to every impulse. And that's a disaster. Right? And no matter how much maybe we'd like to embrace something like that as a culture, no one has ever parented that way. And the most liberal-minded person in the world will never parent that way. They will know with their children, whoa, 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 your feelings have run amok. we got to reel this back in. You're not allowed to just feel whatever you feel. 
So the first error is the liberal error of giving full vent to feelings, and the second error is the conservative error, right? To stamp them out, like feelings, out of control. Desires, bad. Be rational. Put the feelings away. Don't feel them. Your impulses are illegitimate. They cloud things. But feeling is central to being created in the image of God. God's primary goal for you is to experience joy. It is ungodly to not feel. It's sin to not feel. So if we don't stamp them out, but we don't give full vent to them, what do we do? The Psalms are here to say, we pray them. We process them in the presence of ultimate truth. We try to silence them because we're afraid of them, or we give them full vent. When we give them full vent, we'll actually allow them to function as their ultimate truth, right? Determining our behavior and how we interpret the world, people, situations, the future. But here's the thing. Emotions and impulses can be really helpful advisors, but they're terrible masters. And so the Psalms are here as a place for us to pray through our emotions, to take the way we feel about things and put them in the presence of God. So what happens when Asaph does that? Verse 17 is the turn in this song. Then I went into your sanctuary. Then he went into the presence of God. That's where he regains perspective. And he's talking about worship. And envy, just like all of our other troubling emotions, can never, ever, ever be worked out by yourself in your own mind. Ever. You can assume if you're working it out by yourself in your own mind, you're running down the wrong paths. And for two reasons. A, we have a ridiculously small amount of information in each of our imaginations. We have way too little information to draw most of the conclusions we draw. And then secondly, our heart so quickly biases all our interpretations of everything. We are very, very unfair interpreters. And so what the psalmist does is he takes his emotions into the presence of God, into worship among the people of God in order to deal with that. This is what I mean by the fact that we can't process negative emotions by ourselves because we don't have enough information and we're really, really biased. This is what I mean. Here's a small, it's like sampling event. This is what happens to us. You observe a real historical event. You're supposed to hang out with a friend on Thursday night. You're supposed to go to dinner together. And he doesn't show up. And he doesn't respond to your text. And it's been 45 minutes now. Y'all had agreed upon this. And then you do the most socially awkward thing any of us do now. You dial his phone number and call him. Oh, that's so weird, right? No answer. Then what do you do? So there are the events. There's the data you have. Then you begin to draw conclusions about the observation. I got ditched. Then you start to draw conclusions about that. You start to say why. You st- we start to have theories about why I got ditched, why they're not here, right? And it's usually, we tend to be very unfair. Well, they're a terrible friend. I can't believe they would do this. We begin judging, right? We draw conclusions and begin judging. And then what happens is that con- conclusion then elicits some emotion, right? When we draw a conclusion, our heart has to begin to deal with the conclusion we drew. And it's, man, I cannot stand them. They are so selfish. This really makes me feel insecure. I can't believe this. I can't believe they would do this to me. They're really not the friend I thought they were, right? And all of a sudden, this like angst 
and frustration towards them. This emotion starts coming alongside of the conclusion. And then the emotion takes root and it starts grabbing other stories with them. You start remembering the fact that y'all spring break plans kind of got confused and it didn't work out and that they didn't sit next to you at when y'all's kind of group of friends went to the movies the other week and you wanted to, and then you remember the Instagram posts of when they went to the city and didn't even tell you. And so you start reaching, you grab these other data points and you start reinforcing your conclusions and your emotions start running, right? I hate my life, I don't like myself, and also they're a superficial, terrible person. And now it's got us in its grip. And we begin to make decisions and treat people according to where that conclusion and the ensuing emotions have guided us. Here's the problem. And maybe most of us have been in a situation like that. That night, the reason they didn't respond is because they were on the phone all night with their dad because their mom was in the hospital with heart complications and they're trying to figure out whether or not they have to fly home this weekend. How many of us have run away in judgment and in anger towards someone without all the data? We're doing it all the time. We're very ungracious towards each other. What happened? We made a lot of assumptions about a small set of data and our hearts ran away with it and ran down paths that twist and hurt others. In this psalm, we're dealing with much bigger issues, right? Eternal things. And it's the presence of God that gives perspective. We don't just need the voice of our friend to say, hey, you didn't have everything there when you started to run away. We're talking about eternal things, so we need someone with eternal perspective to say, hey, you started to run away with things, but you don't have all the information just yet. And so he begins, he comes in the sanctuary of God, and it says, I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. And the, the Hebrew word is, I finally understood their afterward. And what he's saying is, when you come into the presence of the eternal God, we see things on such a short timeline. And when you come into the presence of personal eternity, you begin to see everything projected on an eternal timeline. And he says, when I was bent out of shape, I was like an animal, Right? I could only see and react to the things that were right in front of me. I'm seeing and I'm reacting to these. This limited amount of data. Because that's what an animal does. It only reacts to what's right in front of it. Animals don't have the capacity to see it along their timeline, the afterward, the week later, the year later, the eternity later. I read an article the other day on, on how to make decisions, and this psychologist has this thing she called the 10-10-10 rule. Ask yourself before you make a decision, where will it land you 10 minutes from now, 10 months from now, and 10 years later? But in the presence of God, we're given the perspective of the eternal afterwards. What does the eternal afterwards, what does that big timeline tell us? What's verse 20? Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, you rouse yourself and despise them as phantoms. You begin to see that this life on an eternal timeline is incredibly short. Do you know, Christian or not, everything in this life is temporary. Everything. That means all the bad things in this life are temporary. That means all the good things in this life are temporary. Everything. And if you make your life about knitting your heart and dreams and your hope at joy to temporary things, that means you will lose everything. 
the way Keller said is if all the good you have is the good things in this life of this world, you'll lose everything. If in this life you knit your heart to the eternal heart of God, well, nothing in this life or the next can take eternal things from you. He's granted perspective. The difference between one, one step slightly to your left, am I right? And the difference between one step slightly to the right, it's pretty small right here, right? It's 18 inches or it's two feet. What's the difference projected across a map of the United States? Is the difference between Mexico and Canada. Right? Perspective is when you're transported 100 miles up and you can actually see the path projected across the continent and realize that the right steps and left steps right now seem really insignificant. They lead to radically different places. The difference in a slight step to the left and a slight step to the right projected over 10 months, 10 years. What is the difference between a slight step to the left and a slight step to the right projected over eternity. What the psalmist is saying is that's the difference between heaven and hell. We don't end up where we end up in a flash, in an instant. We get there little by little in daily choices and daily steps in a certain direction. This week I heard the news of three different friends whose marriages imploded this past month. They didn't get there with one ill-fated decision. They got there in small steps that they've been taking for a long, long time, long before they even started dating their spouses. The small steps are life is about me. I've got to find someone that's going to make me happy. It's about my immediate pleasures. It's not about sacrificial and suffering love or other. So if they fail those, well, all of a sudden we're really far apart after a couple of years. They took daily steps in that direction decades ago. God's presence, eternity, prayer, what that does is it puts our emotional outbursts, our meltdowns, our temptations, our sufferings, our challenges, and our decisions, and our dreams in this life into an eternal perspective. And without coming into God's presence in worship and prayer, what happens is we believe that the most real thing is the material world, what we can see and touch, what's right in front of us. And so it dominates us and it controls us and it threatens us. And we will come undone if the job doesn't work out or there's no marriage, there's no boyfriend or girlfriend, or the social life is falling apart. In prayer and worship, we are reminded there's more to the story, much, much more. This is the short part. There's a greater reality. This world, this life, this is what the psalmist says, it's like a dream. For a second, it feels like the most real thing. That's what a dream does. But it will be over soon. And you'll either have the eternal good of being with the Father, or we'll have no good because we placed all of our hope of good things in the things of this world, and all of those will be taken from us. That phrase when he's like, I was like an animal, is really important because that's where we begin to learn. That's where God begins to grab us, actually. Because Asaph reaches that less than flattering conclusion. I was like an animal. I was reacting to the immediate. I was ready to walk away from you. I had no wisdom. And it's important to read verse 22 and 23 together. I was so foolish and ignorant, I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you. Yet, I still belong to you. And you hold me by my right hand. 
You guide me with counsel. You receive me in glory. Look at where he's come from. He's been horrible towards God, right? Worship leader of Israel. He was in charge of the spiritual lives of the nation of Israel. And he's been horrible towards God. He's confronting us on the reality that often what we're doing is we're not seeking God, but we're actually seeking to use God to get the life that we want. So we're not lifted up with, we're not filled up with love for him. That's not what we ever wanted. We didn't want him. We're filled up with actually doubts about him, suspicion about him, because we didn't come into this thing seeking him. We came to him, hopefully to subcontract him out to build the life that we designed. Here are my plans, God. Do you think you can do this? And we're confused when we find out he's not building that house because he never agreed to those plans. And what's really happening is we're learning we actually never loved God for his sake, but simply because he's God. We conditionally liked God because we thought we could use him to get the things we really wanted. And then we say, that's why we say, in vain, I tried to keep my heart pure. I got into this God so that you could be my subcontractor, and he's never about that. And if we think about it for very long, if he's God, and he's the creator, and we are his creation, and all this is his, it is silly that we ever related to him that way. And a vast majority of the crisis of faith that we're going to experience in this life will happen when we're confronted with hard circumstances, and we question God saying, But God, I wanted this. And Asaph is saying, He never promised us this. He promised us Himself. And this is Asaph, and this is us, kicking and screaming and being brats and complaining and whining and saying, God, but I wanted their life. And verse 23 says, yet. I was... was, and yet you hold me. That yet is the word of grace. Last weekend I watched a friend of mine hold his little one-year-old boy during a sermon. Standing in the back, holding a sermon. And the little boy climbed all over him, over his shoulders, stiff-armed him with sticking fingers up his nose, in his eyes, in his mouth. It's what one-year-olds do. Whined and kicked and fussed. And then he fell asleep. Why did he find rest? Because his father held him. Throughout all the whining and kicking and fussing and eye gouging, Cam held him. This is Asaph realizing how ungrateful he's been and then really being transformed by the word, yet, yet you held me, yet I'm still yours. You're my portion. All I want is to be near you. Why? Because he saw something else in the sanctuary besides eternity. It's not the only thing he saw when he came into worship in Israel. The other thing he saw is he saw love. In the Old Testament, they went to the temple to see love. That's why they went. Not sentimentality, but God's specific, acted out, directed, covenantal love toward people who regarded him lightly if they regarded him at all. Because what he saw at the center of the temple is sacrifice. He saw the place where God swept away our sins so that we could be with him, 
even though we don't deserve it, even though we grumbled in our prayers, even though we were in charge of the spiritual lives of the nation of Israel and grumbled in our prayers and talked about how we wanted to walk away. He saw in the temple, he saw in that sacrifice before the first century, foreshadowing, teaching them about Jesus, that we now view from the other side of the cross, that Jesus suffered for our sin as our substitute so we wouldn't have to suffer. And that's why the book of Hebrews was written, is to tell us the Israelites were always being taught about love in the temple until Jesus came. He was the sacrifice they always anticipated, that everything was pointing towards. It was a teaching tool to teach them the true sacrifice, the one Christ offered up for one time as a single sacrifice for all the reasons God has the right to and should have given up on us. And so now we have confidence because all the doubts and the disobedience and the dealing and the sin against God has been carried away by Jesus. He died our death so we could have life. God let go of Jesus' hand so that He would never let go of ours. The heart of love is not sentimentality. Sentimentality is being able to smile when you talk about someone like, oh, they're great. I love them. Sorry, I'm throwing a little Alabama, Mississippi in there, but I understand sentimentalism in the South a little bit better, but that's not love. That's just like, they don't offend me. That's basically the only requirement to have that said about you. The, The heart of love is substitution. And that's what Jesus came to do substitute himself for us so that we could know that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Coming into the sanctuary is not just coming into an eternal perspective. It's coming to rest and to revel in the grace of Jesus. Uh, A good friend of mine, several of you all know, Anthony Degani, graduated from here almost three years ago now. Uh, He came to Stanford on a wrestling scholarship. Uh, Was not a Christian when he came to Stanford. Coming here was a big deal for him and his family. Um, elite school, elite athlete here. Uh, and you know the anxiety that we all experience when you come here, that we kind of, you work so hard in high school, you have these high dreams, and when you come to Stanford, right, all the anxiety is supposed to be silenced, like you've arrived. And it doesn't go away, does it? And actually, in a lot of ways, it gets a lot worse. And th- but that's what Anthony expected, like, I arrived. But Ecclesiastes says God has actually set eternity in the heart of man. And that actually means that the reason Stanford wasn't enough, and the next step down the road, and the next impulse acted on, and the next thing you try, and the next thing we try, and the next step, and the next dream, and the next threshold, you know what it's going to lead, for, lead to? It's going to lead to the need for more. It's going to lead to a growing discontentment. Stanford was that place. And actually, when I talk to you, more of you are discontent now than you were in high school because this was supposed to be the place. So now you've got to write some higher dreams. And probably a lot of y'all are going to get there. And when you get there, you're going to find out it didn't calm the eternity in your heart. And to try and satiate an infinite desire with finite things is going to fan your frustration more and more and more. Anthony came to Stanford, and in coming here, he experienced more success than he ever was going to imagine ever could have imagined. And when he came here, because of that, he came to hear about and know the love of God and Jesus at Stanford. And this is the reason why. This is what he said. These are his words. I'll close with this. He said, I realized I had experienced everything I thought I could experience. And if I had everything but the love of God, I felt like I had nothing. 
I had everything I could ever dream of. And I realized I had nothing. And when I began to comprehend the extent of Jesus' love, that he died for me, a grumbling sinner, I realized that if I had nothing in this world, but I had Jesus, I would have everything. That is God's invitation to you. Will we be chewed up by our own impulses and our emotions and our dreams for this short life? Will you rest in Jesus' love? Let's pray.